0: If your Christmas spirit includes a healthy dose of curiosity, then order yourself a copy of my new book, Christmas Past, the fascinating stories behind our favorite holidays traditions. Available in hardcover and e-book from Lions Press, and as an audiobook from Recorded Books, narrated by yours truly. Find it at all your favorite online booksellers, and remember, it makes a great gift. What you're you're hearing now is a scene from a theatrical experience that most Americans have never encountered firsthand. And what you're not seeing are the colorful costumes, the dazzling set, and the -the over-the-top theatrical gesturing often done in unison. So what's it all about? To begin to answer that question, let's go back to 16th century Italy where troops of strolling performers went town to town, performing plays that included comedy, music, dance, and acrobatics. The characters in these plays all fell into one of four stock character types, and usually portrayed in an exaggerated manner, and the stories themselves stuck to one of several stock narratives, such as two lovers separated by a meddling figure. It was known as Commedia dell'arte. Not only was it popular throughout Europe until the 18th century, but it was also an early form of professional theatre. Now, what does any of this have to do with Christmas? Well, maybe not much. Not yet, anyway. Except that eventually this art form found its way to England. A troupe performed for Queen Elizabeth in 1602. It really caught on, and by the 18th century there were English plays in this style, with some additional touches. Still not Christmassy, sure, but into the 19th century this style of theater was fully baked into English culture and continued to evolve. New character types, a focus on fairy tale stories, a shift toward emphasizing music and adding rhyming couplets, puns, and innuendo as standard components. Bigger productions, shows with casts numbering as high as 500 people, including some of the biggest celebrities of the day. All of this continued evolving throughout the 19th and 20th centuries and into the 21st, where its popularity is as solid as ever. And while you still may be having trouble forming a connection between any of this and Christmas, that's okay, because your friends in the UK already have. This is the wild and whimsical world of pantomime, a form of theater that went on to become a beloved Christmas tradition for millions, one that delights audiences young and old year after year with slapstick comedy, battles between good and evil, lots of yelling, and lots of cross-dressing. I'm Brian Earle. This is Christmas Past. Pantomime has come a long way since its earliest 16th century roots, so what is a typical modern performance like? In its contemporary
1: version, it probably closest resembles a musical. That's Simon
0: Sladen. He's the senior curator of modern and contemporary performance at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. He's also a theater critic who sees 20 to 40 pantomimes a year, which he reviews for the British Theater Guide.
1: Pantomime is a mix of everything. Song and dance and spectacle and magic, comedy, circus, musical theater, music hall, you know, grand narrative, transformations. A bit of everything for everyone, really.
0: Now, when you hear the word pantomime, it might bring to mind the image of someone wearing a French sailor's shirt and with white face paint pretending to be trapped in a box. But obviously, that's not what we're talking
1: about here. So, why call it that? But the form absolutely in the UK can be dated to about 1717, which is when we see the first use of the term, pantomime being used in a line in a lineage from classical Greek and Roman tradition, where the word pantomimus, miming, means imitator of all. So, meaning conveyed through gesture and movement. So, the term
0: was adopted to describe this form of theater as some kind of revival of tradition. While the pantomime we're describing does share some common ground with those silent street performers, it's also a very different animal. So to further make the distinction, most people in the UK have adopted a shortened form of the word.
1: Yeah, in the UK we generally call them panto. And
0: modern-day panto traces its roots back to that revival starting in 1717, though clearly things have diverged
1: the characters evolved and really split into the birth of ballet and pantomime. It's a very, very interesting, complicated journey to get to where we are today with contemporary pantomime.
0: It's interesting that Simon mentions that Panto and ballet are branches of the same tree. Speaking of ballet, just as The Nutcracker does here in the States, Panto essentially takes over the theatrical landscape each Christmas in the
1: UK. Each year there's about 280 different pantomimes on stages across the entire country from one of the largest theatres in the world, the London Palladium in the West End, to some of the smallest theatres in some of the regional parts of the United Kingdom that might seat only 80 people. So it really does account for the cross-section of the theatrical landscape and infrastructure and industry. You might see a very small production, you might see a very big production. But now here's the million dollar question, why? One of the oddest things about Panto is that there really isn't anything Christmassy about them. Now most of these shows have a winter scene because of the timing of the year and the seasonality. A few shows do have sometimes the appearance of snowmen or Santa and In recent years, there's been a great piece of comedy business where the 12 days of Christmas is used to introduce new lyrics for some of the presents in a piece of sort of comedy slapstick nature. As Three performers try to perform all 12 uh, with lots of props and custard pies going everywhere and throwing props into the audience and having to try and get them back. So that's certainly become a part of it. The only thing really, I suppose, that's a direct acknowledgement of Christmas is sometimes the rhyming couplets at the very end of the show when the characters are saying goodbye will mention something like, you know, have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. So if
0: typically there's nothing especially Christmassy about the content overall, there must be some reason it became a
1: Christmas tradition. The tradition of Pantomime being at Christmas, I suppose we can really thank the Victorians for. Prior to that, Pantomime would have been part of the annual programme Big, big pantomimes done at Whitson, for example. But Boxing Day in the Victorian period was when the pantomimes, the big pantomimes, would open. Which is interesting, because obviously Boxing Day is the day after Christmas. So that would be where you'd go and celebrate, see the pantomime, and then they would run through. Remember earlier that Simon described
0: Panto as like a conventional musical? Well, there are a handful of things that make Panto unlike a conventional musical and make Panto, well, Panto. In the first place, they're almost exclusively based on fairy tales, and stick to strict genre conventions involving a battle between good and evil. Cinderella, Jack and the Beanstalk, and Aladdin are typical examples you might see. In the second place, they always contain a certain set of
1: stock characters. Principal boy, that might be your hero. Jack going up the beanstalk, or Prince Charming, for example. You have your principal girl, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty. And then there's two roles which are very, very, very particular for pantomime. One is the dame, often a cross-dressed role. Somebody's mother, so it might be Widow Twanky in Aladdin, or it might be the nurse in Sleeping Beauty. And the comic, so this is sort of the comedy sidekick character. And it's those two that often deliver most of the comedy and have certain bits of audience participation as well. So those are very, very important to help us define what a pantomime might be. In many ways they drive the show through. They don't particularly have any role in the narrative, so to speak. They don't advance it in that way. But if you like, they're the clowns of the piece. In addition to that, we have the stock characters of the of the fairy or the immortal benevolent agent, and we also have the villain as well.
0: In the third place, even though pantos are based on well-known old stories, the performances are kept fresh with references to current events and pop culture.
1: So it always is responding to the now. It's a living newspaper of the year. It's always responding to its audience and its locale, whether that's the one-way system or the regional politics or the weather or something that's happened in the news. It uses contemporary pop numbers quite frequently, so often there'll be the chart hits in there. And finally,
0: and this just may be the big one, there's a very strong element of audience participation.
1: And there are some stop call and responses. So often, something will happen, and a character might say, oh, no, it didn't. And then the audience must shout back, oh yes it did, or oh no he didn't, or oh no she didn't, oh yes he did. And it's a little bit like an unwritten rule, everyone seems to know it and and learns it and does it. The other big piece of audience participation is it's behind you. So they might be looking for the lamp, or there might be some comic business going on, and the audience have to shout out he's behind you, or it's behind you. Those really are stock aspects of it. And the it's behind you piece also, often there's a a ghost which is trying to haunt and scare some of the characters away, so it's jumping around behind and the audience goes screaming.
0: Now at this point you might be saying to yourself, I think I've seen a play like this when I was a child. This sounds a lot like a typical children's play. But there's more to it than first meets the eye.
1: The interesting thing about pantomime is it is one of the only genres where the audience profile is incredibly diverse from maybe three or four-year-olds all the way to in many venues across the country in the UK. There are people in their 90s and 100s that go. So three, four, five generations all watching together. And a part of that is also that it provides something for everybody. So great spectacle and clowning for younger audience members and the, the double entendre, the sort of naughtiness that comes out from that verbal and lyrical and textual dexterity to sort of titillate the adults in the audience. The overall
0: effect is an atmosphere of fun and Christmas cheer that's as festive as it is rollicking and
1: raucous. Raucous is a wonderful word to describe it. And again, it's probably one of the only forms where you are encouraged to shout out. There's always a song at the end called the song sheet, which everybody joins in at. And sometimes one side of the audience is in competition against the other or well, they bring children up on the stage to sing along and then you cheer for who you think has done the best. Mostly in the UK, certainly in theatres, you know, it. sit down, shut up, watch it and enjoy it and don't, you know, crumple your popcorn all too loudly. But here from the very moment it's off, the fairies asking you to cheer for good, you know, people are dancing along to the songs, you've got every time the comic character comes on and says, hi, your kids, you shout hiya, whatever their name might be, the dame might ask you to look after some, Something think might be the handbag or a cake at the side of the stage. You have to shout out if anybody ever comes near it or tries to steal it. You know, there's the audience participation. So it really is a, a celebration and an opportunity to, in those darker days of the winter, when the weather is not great, when it's cold, really come alive and celebrate this crazy world of Pantoland with your family, your friends, your local community, and be transported to a magical
0: world. So much of the American style of Christmas actually comes from England, especially the traditions formed during the Victorian period. And Americans love going to the theater at Christmas time, as the popularity of the Nutcracker attests. And yet, Panto never really took hold here in America. Though there are little pockets of panto-activity here and there. In
1: Pasadena, for example, Ariana Grande did pantomime there before her career completely exploded into the global megastar she is today. There's a couple of companies in New York, but not to the extent where every theater in the land is doing it. Well then, why is that the case? I wonder if part of that is due to the sense of humor, and each country has a very particular sense of humor that comes out very strongly. Now, you need to adapt that for your local surroundings of course.
0: Or could a bit of superstition and negative publicity have
1: prevented people from
0: experiencing panto?
1: There's an example of a production going to America uh, and the theater burning down, the pantomime in the theater burnt down, and other examples of of shows not making it across the seas and the ships being sunk and stuff. So I think for a long period it was seen as perhaps the bad luck thing to export. It could also have to do with a simple marketing problem. I think as well with musical theatre and the close proximity to that and pantomime, marketing the shows can be very difficult. So, uh, Disney's Aladdin, for example, very difficult to market another version of Aladdin in and around that. Cinderella, of course, if you haven't got the tradition of pantomime, you might think it's the Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella. The Andrew Lloyd Webber Cinderella is going to be opening on Broadway later this year. So, I think partly there is that. Or maybe the
0: real answer is that it's not that it never caught on in America, it's just that hasn't yet. I wonder if I'd prefer Panto to become normalized here in the States, or whether it's better to leave things as is, so that experiencing it can feel like an enticing glimpse into another culture's image of Christmas. I have so many wonderful memories of foreign travel during the Christmas season, just like Melissa in Canada.
2: One of my favorite Christmas memories was Christmas of 2003. Um, My parents surprised my sister and I with a trip to Puerto Vallarta. I had never been to Mexico and I'd never been actually to a resort before. And we had a great time with some friends of my parents and their kids. And one of my favorite memories was that my sister and one of their daughter, the friend's daughters, they made a snowman out of the sand and stuck a little twig as his little corn pipe. And he was holding one of the glasses that were supplied by the beach resort. Anyways, from the great white north, Merry Christmas.
0: I wonder where is next on my list for Christmas travel. I've been to India, Iceland and the Bahamas during Christmas time. Maybe next we'll try England or Norway. We'll see. Now we have just about three weeks left in this season. That means there's still plenty of time to share one of your favorite Christmas memories with the rest of us. Just record a voice memo into your phone and send it to ChristmasPastPodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Keep it reasonably short, clean and family-friendly, and be sure to say your name and where you're from. I'll be back again in a few days with an all-new story from Christmas Past. Until then, let me tell you that Christmas Past is produced in wonderful Willow Glen, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. Thank you so much to Simon Sladen and thank you to Tom Murray and Evolution Productions for permission to include audio from one of their productions at the beginning of this episode. Thanks to Melissa in Canada, and as always, thank you for listening. Check the show notes to this episode for links to Evolution Productions, the Victoria and Albert Museum, and where you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget, you can drop me a line anytime with a Christmas memory or just to say hi. Again, my address is christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com. And hey, if you're really feeling the Christmas spirit, why not help more people discover the show? It's as easy as telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do leave a review, I'll send you a Christmas past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card as my way of saying thanks. Reach out for details. I hope your Christmas season has been wonderful so far, and I'm looking forward to spending the rest of it with you. Until next time, may your days be merry and bright.